Whatever it is you want to do in life, you'll be able to do. It's always you versus you. That it doesn't matter how old you are, how young you are, you can achieve anything that you set your mind to. Spend the rest of your natural life waking up and going after it. This is my purpose, and you will not stop me. You are listening to Mojo Sports. Yeah, hello and welcome to Mojo Sports. My name's Dan Frost. This is the one-on-one show and today, well, we have a very, very special guest for you. We're going to change lanes a little bit and uh, yeah, look really excited to introduce my next guest, uh, Jonathan Gerlach. Welcome to Mojo Sports. Thanks, Dan. Nice to meet you. Yeah, look, it's, um, you know, it's really, I guess, you know, we'll we'll obviously take our, our, our time and we'll step our way through your story, but obviously we've just come off the back of a pretty special event and uh you know we will tease a little bit and get into it soon but um yeah listeners i think this is a pretty special story and one that i'm sure you're going to enjoy so jonathan let's let's take it all the way back Let, let's go back to the starting point can you tell us a little bit about you know growing up where you grew up a little bit about your family um and yeah let, let, let's take it all the way back yeah sure uh, so I was born and raised in, in Nara, which is on the south coast of New South Wales, just near Jervis Bay. And so I spent probably the first, uh, I think, 18, 19 years of my life there. Uh, I've got uh, four siblings. Uh, my mum raised, so one of them is my stepsister, but my mum raised uh, four of us uh, on her own from when we were under the age of 10 or four of us. Um, so we had a bit of a unique upbringing and um, sort of one that brought us all closer together. Um, and, you know, we were sort of lower socioeconomic family as well. So we didn't have a lot of opportunities and, um, you know, but we we're pretty close knit family, definitely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then tell us a little bit about, you know, just some of your interests back then and a little bit about, you know, sort of your schooling and, and yeah, that, those sort of experiences. Uh, so I went to primary school at St. Michael's and went to high school at Bombardier High School. Uh, one of the the things that that uh, that I did throughout my childhood and through high school was play a lot of sport. Um, coming from a, a, a regional town like Nara, it's um, there's not a lot of things to do down there. It's pretty quiet, especially back then, 25, 30 years ago. So um, I, you know, my my dad and my pop were pretty big into sport, so they they sort of fostered that uh, passion for sport early on. And you know, I found, found myself playing things like. Um, cricket, um, AFL, um, you know, I got, I got into tennis at about age eight and that was, that was the sport that sort of clicked for me. Uh, I played that for about 10 years and, and tried to play a, at a high level. It was you know, it's a tough sport, especially when you're really short. <laughs> um, but that was, that was the thing that was my passion from about age eight onwards. So, you know, I, that was, I, you know, if I wasn't on a tennis court, I was up, hitting the ball against a brick wall for hours on end and um that was yeah that was sort of my passion through those those younger years yeah no it um it's made it, it well a lot of things i can relate with number one being short you know at five seven i can uh, i can relate there and um yeah just that just that early age love for sport you know like just always being outside not necessarily you know so yeah with friends and stuff like that but you know sometimes just out there with any sort of ball kicking it around throwing it around and uh, mate, that uh, yeah, no, definitely, definitely can relate. All right, Jonathan. Well, uh, I guess we've teased it, uh, enough, and, and I guess uh, what, what I want to talk about is, um, you know, some of your challenges and, and, and share your story about your disability, um, you know, with the listeners, and, and obviously, 
you know, where that led you. And, um, you know, for listeners who are not aware, I, I myself have a disability. I've, um, you know, I sort of cover that in my one-on-one. But, yeah, Jonathan, talk to us a little bit about, you know, some of the challenges. So I've got a disability called Usher syndrome, which is a genetic condition and it's hereditary. Uh, although there's only one person in my family that I know of in my whole family tree that, that has the condition. It's, it's quite rare. It's about one in 400,000, I think. Um, don't quote me on that. Um, but basically what that means is that I have a vision and a hearing impairment. Uh, at age three, I was, I was diagnosed with the hearing impairment. So, you know, my, my parents would call out to me and I, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't listen to them or I wouldn't, wouldn't respond. And so they thought there might've been something wrong. So they took me in to an audiologist and got my, my ears checked. And sure enough, I had a, had a slight to moderate hearing loss, which meant that I needed to wear hearing aids. And I've, I've done that ever since um but it wasn't until about age 15 that um my my mum took me into a optometrist and got my eyes checked because started some some things happening where i you know I'd, especially at night time I'd, I'd be running into things or bumping into people or wouldn't be able to navigate my way around certain areas or um you know for playing tennis for example i i'd hit the ball against the wall and then i'd go looking for the ball because it went off to the side and then I'd spend half an hour trying to find it and then I'd come back to where I was and it was right in front of me the whole time. So there were things like that that were sort of red flags and I was like, okay, well, there's something going on here. Um, and sure enough, I was diagnosed with the vision impairment component of Usher syndrome, which is it's called retinitis pigmentosa and that's a degenerative vision loss, uh, which means that I basically I'll lose – I've lost all of my night vision – uh, and all of my peripheral vision comes right in where I've, you know, within the next 10, 15 years, we'll end up with pretty much pinhole uh, eyesight left. Um, I've been legally blind since I was about 18, but that vision just very slowly gets worse as I get older. And so those, the hearing and the vision loss are combined as one actual disability because of the, the genetic defect. Yeah, look, I, I remember, you know, myself, I was diagnosed with my condition at four um, but I, I didn't really get the sporting conversation, which was all I sort of, which was all, you know, that was my biggest focus with, with my bone condition was, um, I think at age 10, it was, you know, you're going to have to retire. No, 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 no more rugby league. Um, and then sort of shortly after had had the spinal fusion, but it's interesting what we, how we sort of process, you know, the, the, the news and the information, obviously when we're younger, but yeah, tell us a little bit about, you know, how you, I guess, how you reacted and, and, you know, what you were sort of thinking about back then as you sort of try to process, um, you know, the diagnosis, yeah. Yeah. Through through high school, more so than primary school, I, I struggled a lot with the, the hearing impairment side of thing because I, I was bullied quite a lot. I was pretty much the shortest kid in my year or through high school and um, those in combination and being seen differently by my, my, my peers, my fellow students, so... You know that was that was quite brutal for me, and and having tennis and having sport that was my passion, that was my outlet, and that that's what got me through those years. But then getting to age fifteen and finding out, oh hey, you you're going to go blind as well. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, so, uh, it's still very vivid in my mind that experience of of getting those test results, and my my mom and my pop being there at the time, and yeah, I could sense the feeling in the room of you know dread and you know not knowing what the future is going to hold and the, the fir- I still remember it. the first question I asked my mum right there and then was am I going to be able to play tennis again but that, that was all I that's all I did 
that's what, as I said, that's what got me through all the bullying and all the all those hard years in high school, and that's that's all I look forward to each day. So that you know, to think that I wasn't ever going to be able to play that again was devastating. And um, yeah, that's, <laughs> it's hard to it's hard to think about sometimes. But you know, fortunately for me, I had developed all those years of um, of my passion for sport all those years, and and tried a lot of different sports and and um, developed that competitiveness and, and that was always in me and hence where, where I have today we'll probably get to that a little bit later but yeah, yeah that abs- passion for sport um, continued on yeah absolutely no and I think it's um, you know obviously you know where you've got to it, it it's, it's unbelievable but we just really appreciate you know your honesty and you know just being upfront about some of your challenges because I know there's a lot of you know young people out there that have sort of you know battle, battling their own health conditions or disabilities and and just even um, you know other athletes that are, that, are, that are sort of going a lot going through a lot um, especially over the last couple of years um, you know mm. it, it's just really important to to talk through that and I guess for you you know what what were some of the things that that, that sort of changed like talk to us about that start of the journey because obviously you know we're certainly going to get to where you got but talk to us through like how did you and, and I guess this is life and this is sport isn't it it's just you know so some little things that can kind of lead you down a path but yeah talk to us about those those early days and that early journey as you started to sort of venture towards a career in athletics yeah yeah, look, those those early days after the diagnosis, I, I I sort of repressed it and didn't. I guess it's hard for the listeners to understand, but at age fifteen, even though I was diagnosed with this condition where I was, my vision was going to get worse to the point where I could end up blind one day. I still had reasonably good sight at age fifteen. There were some things I struggled with, like night vision, and and my daytime vision was affected. But at that age, I I could still go and get a, get my license at that age if I chose to do so, which a lot of people in my position at that age had done. And later on in their life, in their twenties or even thirties, if they weren't diagnosed or later, had to give their license up at that point. So so my vision wasn't that bad at that age. So for me, it was quite confusing that hey, I can still do just about everything that all my peers can do so I didn't really have to bring it out and say well can I get assistance in this area for accessibility or you know needed support from guide dogs or or you know using a white cane or any of these things that vision impaired people generally use to support Um, so I sort of just kept it to myself in a way and just dealt with it Um, on top of you know this is going back almost 25 years ago when, when I was diagnosed. And back then, we didn't have mobile phones that were smartphones. We didn't have social media. The internet was, you know, I remember my first email address that I ever had was when I was 15. So, it was, you know, it was all pretty new then. There were no support groups or any of that sort of stuff. So, the the ophthalmologist, eye specialist, uh, when he first diagnosed us, he, he just gave us a pamphlet and a pair of sunglasses or told me to get a pair of sunglasses and, and said, because you know I'm glass sensitive as well, so he said, and just sent us out the door, and that was it. So we had to figure it out for ourselves. So that was another element of, all right, well, no one can help me at the moment, so we're just going to figure this out on our own. So um, it took it took about ten years before I got to a point where actually things started to shift in my life because I took that attitude of not really wanting to deal with it and not talking about it to you know to my youth. So in terms of turning 18 I, I left Nara and then moved, moved up to Sydney where my brother and sister were and, on, and our group of friends and they were into the clubbing scene so we were going out partying every weekend and having house parties and that was 
I was just trying to be trying to fit in and trying to make friends and trying to be normal. Whereas in high school, I wasn't treated that way. So, and on top of that, trying not to be that person with a disability and not essentially not accepting that I had a disability or had this had this vision impairment that was going to get worse and was going to get to the point where I really did need to plan ahead and and get some support and and um, adapt to that change in my life. Um, so yeah, I just sort of went through those early twenties, went backpacking and and you know partied a lot and studied and did all those things that twenty somethings do. But through that whole time, my eyesight was still getting worse, and I wasn't really accepting it and not actually dealing with it. Um, yeah, and then it got to that point of about twenty six years old, I think, and I had a, a conversation with my GP, and he because I was starting to have some mental health issues and I wasn't sure what was causing it. And um, he just said, you, you're not dealing with what's coming ahead. You need to do something about it. And that's what's causing your, your, your anxiety and your depression is that you, you've got this thing that's affecting every part of your life at the moment and you're not really actually being accountable and trying to plan for it and, and make things easier for yourself. So, um, yeah, it was, that was around that time where I figured I had to do something with my life. And um, and interestingly, I didn't play sport from about age 18 until that point. I gave up the thing that I was passionate about that, that got me through all those hard years early on and you know, until my diagnosis and then threw that away and didn't realise that that was the thing I needed to hold on to and keep pushing with because that was that was the one thing that, you know, that was my outlet, as I said before. Mm, yeah, John, mm. I... I... I can definitely relate, you know, for me, I had about, you know, 10 years of just, um, uh, you know, you sort of not, not feeling sorry for yourself, but you just, you're just so frustrating and all, and almost like for me, like I didn't, I didn't get back into playing uh, rugby cause I couldn't get any sort of insurance coverage to play until I found a competition that would let me sort of play until exactly about the same mate, you know, sort of towards my, my late twenties. And I try to, I try to stay away from it a little bit because, you know, there is a little bit of hurt and pain there as well when you sort of you know, see everyone else, you know, you know, guys around your age sort of go on and they, you know, they make first grade and they do this and then they make origin. You, you just, you just can't help it. Um, but sort of mm. think about that, but yeah, no, something about that, that those late early twenties makes you sort of, um, you know, flick a switch and, and it's about, okay, well, yeah, this is happening and you know, what am I going to do moving forward? So how did you, I, I guess, you know, you probably always had, had love for sport, but how did you, how did you fall back in love with sport? How did you sort of make that connection in those late twenties? It's a, it's a good question. I, I through that process that I had with my uh, my GP and and uh, you know him urging me to go get my eyes tested again because age eighteen was the last time I had them tested and at that point I just went well it's a degenerative condition it's going to get worse there's nothing they can do about it there's no cure in sight at all you know there's no point in getting my eyes tested regularly so I went and got them tested again and sure enough. I was told, yeah, your eyesight's gotten worse. It's getting worse. And that was that sort of um, pivotal moment in my life where that sent me down on a bit more of a spiral with this mental health that I was, issues that I was having at the time. But through that process, then being referred to a great psychologist who I still consult today. I've been there for 12 years now. And, you know, after doing a, quite a lot of learning about myself and about what I was dealing with and she – one of the one of the things that we did to get me back on my feet was to challenge me in a few ways and 
and one of those challenges was to sort of figure out what it is that, I, that makes me happy and what, what, what it is that I love to do. And I didn't really have an answer at that point until I came back to sport. And I explained to her why I stopped doing sport because she asked, why, why aren't you doing it? Like, it's a no-brainer. You should be doing sport. You love it that much, the way you talk about it when you're a kid. I said, well, I stopped because I wasn't competitive anymore. Mm. I was so competitive as a kid and I was quite good at a lot of sports and I loved it so much mm. that I hated the fact that I couldn't be on a level playing field with all, all the other guys that I played tennis against or played footy with or whatever it was. And, and so I just gave it up because it was too hard. But little did I know for all those years that I could probably go and play sport against other vision impaired people. So that was the beginning of that process of, well, okay, started getting back into sport. I got into rowing, which was a bit weird because I couldn't swim at the time, but I was living in the inner west of Sydney and I was right near the rowing club and I'd always thought about having a go at it. So I did that and then um, got back into my running, which I was really enjoyed as a kid and was quite good at, and it just sort of flowed from there. And around that time as well, I found out that I was eligible to compete in Paralympic sports and that, 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 moment so it took about three years from starting sport to getting to that point where i realized i could compete against other people who were on the same page as me with their disability uh and that just my whole world opened up i was like all right paralympics that's it yeah. I'm, I'm going that's that, my goal that's your goal yeah and, and i guess it's it's it, it's so common you know and I've, I've met you know i guess we we work in uh in a similar industry as well where you meet so many people um and just the information's not readily available or it takes us all quite a long time to find you know the options that are available to us but you know quite often you know you know during that period we've built up a little bit of resilience and uh you know there's there's just that burning desire to be successful so I guess talk to us a little bit about um, you know uh, you know you you obviously you know found that opportunity and you started to create some goals. But Jonathan, you, you you certainly didn't go easy on yourself, my friend. You didn't pick an easy sport. Talk to the listeners about sort of the path you went down, and mate, yeah, like I said, you you didn't take an easy option. Yeah, <laughs> it was yeah. The sport itself wasn't easy. I mean, the, the only reason I came across that sport was. Um, and that goal of Paralympics was I one one of the just stepping back a bit. One of the challenges that my my um, my psychologist uh, threw at me was one of the things that, that so one of the things that I allowed around me with my disability when I was younger was the behaviour of people close to me, friends and family who placed these perceived limitations on me. It's like, well, you're vision impaired, you you can't do that, or that's unsafe, or no, you can't go travel overseas and backpack or go live overseas and get a job. Like they're all just too hard. How will you do that? And I allowed that behavior. I allowed I allowed those people to care for me to 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 tell me that oh actually I shouldn't be doing those things. So one of the challenges that my psychologist threw at me was, well, why can't you go overseas? And I I'd, I'd backpack but I hadn't lived overseas. He said, why don't you just go overseas? What, what's the worst that can happen? Like, you would just come home. I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> so I, I did that. I, I moved to Amsterdam and I set myself up there and I spent 18 months there and would have gladly spent longer. But that, uh, and when I was there living and, and working in Amsterdam, that's where I came back into my running. And, and, and it was at that point where I came across triathlon becoming a, a Paralympic sport. So that was around end of 2010, and 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 uh, there was going to be a Paralympic sport in Rio in 2016. So I'm like, all right, 
but that's five and a half years or so from that point where I could train and I, I had no doubt it was extremely difficult to become an elite athlete, especially for, at that point Paralympians we are elite athletes and we do train as hard as as able-bodied athletes and you know you've got to train for years to get to that level so um and (laughs) yes at that point I couldn't actually swim I didn't learn to swim as a kid I almost almost drowned when I was four years old in a backyard pool and I avoided water sports my whole life um played all land sports but avoided avoided the beach avoided pool sports uh, any water sports uh, until I decided, well, I want to go to the Paralympics. I want to, I, I love triathlon. I watched it as a kid, the old St. George series. It was in Australia in the nineties. And, and I was like, well, how about, how about, I really want to learn to swim and I'd love to learn to swim fast. So how about I try and learn to be a triathlete, which means that I'm going to have to learn to swim fast as well. It's not going to be easy, but let's do it. And the other goal was I want to be the first uh, vision-impaired Australian man to compete at the Paralympic Games in triathlon. And that was that was my motivation from day dot, and that, that's what drove me all these years to get to the point I'm at now. Um, no, it's, yeah. it's, uh, it's, it's just incredible, and, and, I mean, it's a story of you, you, you can – you know, it's, it's never too late, and, and if you can set your goal – um, and you, you just go after it, that it's absolutely possible. But, you know, Jonathan, from the outside looking in, you know, we're, we're talking about a Mount Everest goal here, you know, like six years out, you're saying you can't really swim like you're not a natural swimmer, and, and I can relate, I'm pretty similar. So, yeah, talk talk, talk us through, um, you know, obviously those next few years and, and some of the hard work, the dedication, the commitment that it took because, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure there were some obstacles along the way. Hundred percent. Yeah, there was. There were quite a few. Uh, you know, I, I when I left Amsterdam, I moved back to Nara, where I grew up, and 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 stayed with family for a couple of years, and just just needed to find my feet in that triathlon world, learn to swim, and understand how the triathlon sports system worked, and trying to get a coach, and and just just get started, which is hard enough for anyone wanting to get involved in a sport, and uh, let alone someone that in their mind had the end goal of a Paralympic games. Right. So, um, yeah, spent a couple of years training in now and, and I was, I was sort of, there wasn't enough resources there, weren't enough coaches around. And I came across a coach who was Canberra based. Um, and, uh, for about eight months, I was traveling from Nara down to Canberra on a, you know, like a 7am bus from Nara up to the, the high islands, then you get on a trip down to Canberra. It's like about a five-hour trip to get there, and then I'd spend a week at a time with him, and then I'd come home. And I did that for almost a year, sorry, and then uh, and then decided, look, I need to make the move. So um, I moved to Canberra, um, signed up to a double degree at University of Canberra, and and uh and just train with a with a proper coach and a proper squad and 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 started to learn my learn my craft and and learn how to train like a like a triathlete and and like an elite athlete uh and then i sort of got to 2000 and end of 2014 uh there was about 18 months to go to rio the paralympic games and i was looking good at that point to qualify and although at that point i was still a weak swimmer and i probably wasn't going to be able to be competitive for a medal 
um, but still would have, you know, qualified. But about 18 months out from those games, I found out um, that I didn't um, have a medal event at, at the games. Um, so, so for listeners at home, I mean, if anyone watched the Paralympic Games in, in Tokyo, you may have a little understanding around there are several different disability categories in each sport. So there's 23 sports in the Paralympic Games and there's, there's a, a, a quota of medal events per sport. And for, for triathlon at the Paralympics in Rio, we had uh, three male uh, medal events and three female, but we had five disability categories per gender. So that meant that two categories had to miss out. And unfortunately for my category, 18 months out from the Games, oh, I found God. out that... I've been training for four and a half years at that point to, for this goal and then just to be told that or actually you can't compete there. And that was that was devastating in itself, but also I was funded by uh, my sport national sporting federation as a, as a high-performance athlete, but then that funding got cut because I didn't have uh, a medal event to, that I'm working towards because that's how that, that sort of um, federated sporting model works. Um, and for me... Being a vision impaired triathlete, I, I have to race with a sighted guide through my whole race. So that means when I my funding is cut, I have to start funding two people out of my own pocket or trying to raise money to do that because I still had to continue racing in all the other races around the world to maintain my ranking and and um, you know and that that just threw up so many challenges on top of the devastation of not being able to go. So um, it was it was definitely a tricky time and definitely one of the bigger roadblocks or obstacles I've had to face over that last 10 years to get to where I am. But, and, and on top of that, as soon as I found out about the missing out on a medal event, I was talking to myself about whether I should continue in the sport because I, at that point still had no idea whether there would be a medal event in, in Tokyo in four years from that point so, or from 2016. So, you know, I actually went to a rowing Australia para rowing camp you know, like probably three, four months after the Rio Games and like just see if I could be good enough to go back to rowing. And then I went and I, I just realised I was too passionate about triathlon and just sort of come back and persevere and just, just had my fingers crossed that I would get a medal event for Tokyo. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's, uh, that, that's incredible. I mean, you know, you talk to athletes and, you know, a lot of, you know, a lot of, you know, different athletes go through different challenges, but most commonly uh, mate, it's a it's 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 a shoulder injury. It's a significant knee injury. They're, they're things that, you know, yes, they're devastating, but you can overcome them in six to twelve months. But, you know, for the second time in your life, you kind of have your sport ripped out from under you. And and you know, for you to have the just just the just the the, the courage to be able to sort of stick with it. To our listeners, that's all the time we have for part one of our interview with Jonathan. Jonathan, thank you so much for jumping on the show. We're only just getting started. For our listeners, be sure to keep an eye out on part two because you know you've you've gone through a lot, Jonathan, a lot of adversity, but there are there are so many successes to come, and we can't wait to uh, we can't wait to dig in that with you. But for our listeners, we hope you enjoyed uh, today's episode. If you did, please download. Uh, share the show with your family, with your friends. We really do appreciate your support. And until next time, we'll see you then. You have been listening to Mojo Sports. Thank you for your support. It is very much appreciated. The team and I are trying to build something a little different here, so everyone's support is very much appreciated. 
Continue to support the podcast, download, subscribe, check out our social media channels, give us a follow, and be sure to tell your friends about Australia's best-kept secret. This is Mojo Sports.